strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you here, of course, from the uh, Karma Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting right across Australia through Vast Channel 911. And we're also uh, coming to you here from uh, online, of course, at uh, karma.com.au from our website. But uh, here in Alice Springs, it is 8 FM 100.5. Today is the middle of the working week. It's uh, the 18th of uh, September. It's Wednesday. Uh, I'm Kyle Dialing, your host. Great to be back with you once again. Coming up on the program, uh, providing proof of identification still remains a major issue for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are wanting to access uh, their superannuation, according to a new report which was released on Tuesday. Also, uh, statistics released by the Royal Lifesaving Society have revealed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are overrepresented in the national drowning statistics, accounting for 5% of total drowning deaths over a 10-year period. We're also as well going to be hearing from an Aboriginal uh, classical violinist about his journey of blending ancient Aboriginal songs with contemporary music. And as always, we are going to hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well here on Strong Voices. So grab a cup of tea and sit down because we're going to go to a track first and then we'll be right back with our first interview. Hi, this is Kevin Capinari and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Well, earlier this year, representatives from the uh, superannuation industry and Indigenous super uh, and and. Indigenous financial councillors came together in Brisbane for the uh, 2019 Indigenous Super Summit. On Tuesday, the uh, Indigenous Superannuation Working Group from that summit released the Indigenous Super Summit Report, which uh, is looking at, which has identified a bunch of the key issues which are still negatively impacting First Nations peoples who are trying to access uh, super services. Yesterday, I spoke with uh, Eva Shearlink, uh, chair of the working group of the Indigenous Super Summit, as well as the CEO of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, who begins by explaining what the Indigenous Super Summit is all about. The idea is to bring together representatives from the superannuation industry, uh, regulators, but also Indigenous financial counsellors. So it was an idea, I guess, that, that first found its foundations in 2013, when a group of uh, super funds and industry bodies for the superannuation industry, um, at the suggestion of the regulator ASIC, came together to start an Indigenous superannuation working group with the idea being um, to better support Indigenous people when it came to interacting with their super and accessing benefits from their superannuation funds, 
the regulator had found that people were increasingly asking questions about the superannuation and the super funds weren't necessarily engaging enough. So over the, you know, the, the last six or so years, um, we've been working together to try and identify where the problems are, where some of the possible solutions are, and part of that is to get together with all of the stakeholders and talk it through and continue to build on continuously improving outcomes for Indigenous people. Now, as part of this year's uh, summit report, a major issue highlighted was problems with identification. Can you detail yes. some of those concerns with identification and how that actually impacts people accessing the superannuation services? Unfortunately, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't necessarily have the standard forms of ID that non-Indigenous um, people have access to. So it could be, you know, a valid birth certificate or a, a marriage certificate even um, when marriage might happen in a cultural way rather than, you know, through, through the non-Indigenous ways. It could be about not having access to a valid driver's licence or certainly even a passport. So a number of years ago, actually, out of the, one of the outcomes from the first Indigenous Super Summit was for industry to work together with Austrac to develop some guidelines that financial services entities could use to find the alternative ways of identifying uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that didn't require that stand, you know, the standard Medicare card or driver's licence or, or birth certificate, but instead that we could use community cards, we could use references from uh, Indigenous elders or other senior people, leaders in the community, that sort of thing, that we could find alternative ways for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to prove who they were so that they could then access um, their superannuation entitlement. And you mentioned that obviously that, that was an issue that's, that's been an issue for quite some time. Uh, have mm. you seen much progress in, in terms of how that's been going in terms of finding different forms of identification? Yeah, so the Austrac guidance has now been in place for just over over two years and I think financial services are still uh, grappling with how to implement that um, and teach people within the organisation on, on how to use that. So at the summit, we certainly talked about the need for people to really embed the Austrac alternative ID uh, processes into the way that they operate and deal with their Indigenous customers. And there's still some work to be done, so we're putting pressure on them in order to make sure that they're using the alternative protocol, um, but also that they're measuring the outcomes and how many people are actually accessing that so that we can see whether or not there is an improvement uh, in people's access. And what about cultural barriers? Was that something that was brought up at, at the summit? And, and is that something you're still seeing some challenges perhaps being brought up in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So issues around kinship. So in the event that someone passes away um, and who then has access to, to their superannuation, um, the uh, cultural kinship relationships aren't understood under the law um, and it makes it very difficult then for superannuation fund trustees to pay out people who are um, are from the extended, extended family unit from the skin groups, for example, but are not necessarily a direct descendant or um, lawfully married under the Australian law. Um, so the, the government is doing some work in relation to kinship structures at the moment and we're expecting to get a report with some recommendations from them. But we've also seen issues, for example, around making a death benefit claim um, where culturally it's not appropriate to mention this, this, the deceased person's name 
which then obviously makes it very hard to communicate with the super fund about who's a state that you're looking to get access to. So there are some problems there that we need to overcome and it can be very difficult, obviously, to do that over the phone, face-to-face meetings in those scenarios are are much better, um, give much better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we recently saw the uh, First Nations Foundation, you know, going around as part of Big Super Day Out, reuniting people with their lost superannuation. How would you describe the state of lost or unclaimed superannuation among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities? Yeah, look, I had the great privilege on on, um, going on one of those um, big big Super Day out trips. We were in uh, northeast Arnhem Land visiting four different communities. Um, There was a real great interest from community members about superannuation, uh, about looking for lost superannuation. But I think the thing that we found overwhelmingly was that people didn't necessarily understand what superannuation was, that it was there for people to access when they retire, that it's a benefit that you get when you um, when you work. So it's something that your employer pays, you know. Um, so there was, there was a, a bit of a lack of understanding what superannuation was. We were able to reunite people with super that they didn't realise that they had. Uh, their employer had been putting away, you know, the, the 9.5% that they're required to, but the, the member themselves, the employee, didn't know that that was necessarily happening. So we were able to make a few people quite happy with finding $10,000 or, or whatever it was there that was growing for them for when, when they reached retirement. There's also a lot of lost superannuation sitting with the Australian Tax Office So we were able to identify that for people in those communities too and help them find a way to reclaim that money. Uh, So put it into their active superannuation account from where they might be working at the moment. There's a lot of work to do um, in, in terms of creating more awareness around what superannuation is and what it's for and when people can access it. So where to from here. You've been in Canberra delivering this report. What are the next yes. steps? Obviously, some of these things are very complicated issues when we're talking about you know, accessing uh, services within communities. As we know, things like internet access are a big problem as well. What, yes. Is that a process where we need to attack it from multiple levels, where you've got the service providers, you've got government and everything coming together? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's vital that we all work together in order to to figure out what the best possible outcomes might be. And different communities will have, you know, different needs and different priorities. Um, So one of the things that we're looking at is the standardisation of forms. So say there's 150 superannuation funds in Australia, um, that means you've got 150 different forms with different requirements on them. So if there was a way that we could make it easy and we have one form uh, with all the same requirements on them, that would make it easier for the financial counsellors on the, on the ground helping people fill those forms out. That would certainly be a big help and would also you know, not matter so much whether you had internet access or not because there's one form you don't have to go to a specific super fund website in order to download a specific form, for example, there are problems too with being able to call into a community. So phone access can, can be really difficult and sometimes the, the call waiting times um, with some of the, the call centres can be really difficult. So if you have to wait 20 minutes to speak to somebody in order to help you, you know, are people patient enough uh, to sit there and do that? So we, you know, we have to do something about reducing call wait times too to make it easier for people to access the information that they need. So we'll be working with with the regulators about 
things like the standardisation of forms. We'll be talking to government also about increasing funding for financial counsellors so that there's more of them to help community members in, in terms of accessing their superannuation and then also making sure that we embed the Austrac guidance better so that it makes the identification process easier and faster for people. What are your hopes and aspirations following the release of this report and, and moving into the future in terms of addressing some of these issues? I would like to see our super funds take a greater responsibility for their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members and, um, you know, to work on getting a much greater awareness themselves about what some of the barriers and difficulties are that, that people in communities can, can face. Uh, language is obviously uh, a problem if uh, English isn't the first isn't a language that is spoken at home. Financial literacy is another area. We make superannuation way more complex than it needs to be. So I think there's there's a lot of room here for simplification of how we communicate about superannuation and what forms that we use. And I'd like to see a commitment of um, you know resources towards more face-to-face outreach in communities. Now, uh, how we do that and how, how we resource that, I think we have to bring some smart people together in a room and, and figure out a model that, that can work. But I saw firsthand, I think, on that First Nations Foundation outreach trip to northeast Arnhem Land, that if you sit down and spend 20 minutes with a person to help through, uh, it makes such a difference and it can have a life-changing difference. That was Eva Schierling there, Chair of the Indigenous Super Summit Working Group and the CEO of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees. We're going to be hearing our next story very soon here on Strong Voices right after this. Hey, you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8 Kin FM. was Aboriginal violinist uh, Eric Avery performing uh, Galinga at Kirribilli House. Karma's Damien Williams recently caught up with Eric, who has been in Alice Springs for the past week as part of the uh, Desert Song Festival here in Ubuntu Alice Springs, with his blend of traditional Aboriginal and modern contemporary music. Uh, Damien had the opportunity to ask him a few questions, and he began by starting the conversation of asking him about uh, who his mob is. Yeah, my background is from New South Wales. I'm a Koori. I'm Gumbangia, Yuan, Nyampa, and connection to Bunjalung mob. Yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> cool. And now, well, it's always a question. Is it called a fiddle or violin? What do you like to call it? I think I like to call it... Um, yeah, I don't know. I call it fiddle and violin like all the time, like both yeah. of those names. Yeah. Like, how do you? So, how do you differ? Like, what, what makes it a violin? What makes it a fiddle? I think it's the style. Like, um, although you know, even classical violins call it a fiddle. Yeah. And I think, yeah, because the early violin did sound a lot like a fiddle, and so it was um, the development of the violin, like techniques, different styles, was. Um, yeah, always sort of this 
dialogue between classical music and folk music and it was interchangeable in Europe and even everywhere else. Hmm. There's um, different styles that they play even in Tasmania, which is very fiddly as well, so they have their own fiddle style. And I think elsewhere in Australia, you know, there's a few places that, you know, there's a deep, rich history of violin playing, even by blackfellas mm. around Australia. But I think with the fiddle and the violin, yeah, I think I think it's interchangeable, that name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I've always thought it was, you know, always thought about it as uh, you play the fiddle for country yeah. and, and violin yeah. for classical. Yeah, well, that's the general <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what what got you into it? I mean, we were talking earlier, and you got into it pretty late. You know, twelve oh. is a, a late stage. Yeah. What, what sort of got you into it? Well, I started learning classical music by ear. So I would always play the piano, toy violins, and then I got a real violin, and I started to play that. I had a very good teacher. It was a range of things. I just enjoyed classical music since I was young. I saw a few movies with the violin in it. And I just thought, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to try that. And, yeah, it was just something that I wanted to do, you know, play the violin. And I also played guitar. I played so many instruments when I was young, you know. Like, I think the different instruments allowed me to express myself and I sang. And, yeah, I think when you're a teenager, you sort of, (laughs) you know, that's when I started to really develop my music and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people would think it's a, a very technical and, and hard instrument to to learn. How, how did you find it um, picking it up and playing it? Very hard at first. But I kept at it because I so wanted to, like, you know, play music. Yeah. I would always write songs as well, poetry. Mm. And that would come into what I did and... Yeah, played a few pop songs as well in high school <laughs> on the violin. That really motivated me. Yeah. So did you play a lot at school? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So did you like do um, lessons and stuff there as well? Yeah, I did lessons and I did my grades as well. I was surprised at what I could play. Yeah, but it took a lot of practice and for you know, and then I left school and I went on to you know dancing and I still dance and I connected with my culture. Asda as well and I started to look at what I do culturally and that was so important and I think that that's what was the main you know I look back and I look at what I've done I think that that was the main inspiration for me to find a way to express being Aboriginal in the city you know in suburban areas was very it was good for me it was healing but it was also you know a way that I could just express myself as well artistically yeah, you know, and did it help you to be able to connect back to your um, to your mob and culture? Yeah, <laughs> now you know I'm playing these songs. Well, I'm I've I've learnt my I've been learning my language, my dad's language, and I've been very very lucky enough to be able to learn songs from my great granddad and his sisters on the recordings. Oh, cool. Yeah, from the archive of my family at IATSIS. So that has given me, you know, that's a big responsibility. And I take it in my own time. The video that went viral. <laughs> yeah, online, tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Gullinga. And I would, I've been trying, I, it was inspired by 
an old song that was sung by my granddad's great granddad's sister and um yeah i i always waited a long time before i put it with the violin <laughs> yeah because i wanted to learn the proper language and the proper way to pronounce and even sing and so i started to yeah just put this old music with the violin and so it's like all my expression from my life was able to mix with expression from the old people and so that yeah I got to share that as a New South Wales person I got to show that which was so important because in you don't normally hear New South Wales Aboriginal music well I don't not on a you know national scale or so that um I think that that was that's what I wanted to do I wanted to give something you know and share that because I was given so much by other mob as well and so to yeah I think that's just one aspect one small aspect that mm. I haven't thought of before yeah wow because that is very special I mean you know as as we all know that the coastal areas were mm. um, ravaged and language was taken mm. away and, and that kind of thing and it's very special to be able to hear mm. language being spoken mm. and oh, yeah that's just so amazing so yeah like are you trying to um, you know use the words and the songs and like you're saying you know to, to learn it properly and, mm. and pronounce it properly uh, are you writing other stuff um, in the yeah. language yeah I'm writing um, I'm writing my own sort of <laughs> story and language and cool. putting that with music and you know different styles as well like this being here for the desert songs I've gotten to collaborate with Q Violin and he's just amazing I you know I yeah. got to meet such an amazing violin player that actually sings in his language and makes it fun and that's what I think that's the next stage I want to do is like start to express contemporary stories in my language yeah and yeah. like you know to be able to preserve it as well like you said mm. um, to, to showcase it on a national scale as well maybe even international one day um, how important do you see you know being able to do that and preserve that language and and pass it on to the next generations very 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 important we all it's like we get to express different emotions in that language because that's that's what they did you know only up until two generations ago so of course we'd we'd still be thinking in these ways of the past language and so to express myself in my language is like <laughs> it's me yeah it's us it's how we relate yeah. And and so over the years, you know, since high school and stuff like that, what have you been up to? What have, what have you been doing? <laughs> well, I've been dancing. I went to the Australian Ballet. I was with the Education Ensemble for two years on and off. And that allowed me to develop all my independent dance work that I still do. Um, I've been dancing with Marigeku, Mob from Broome, and I've been... I've been just working as a musician in my time off from dancing. I'd even go busking with Dad. Yeah. And that's when, and because he plays a didgeridoo, I got to develop a lot of my stuff um, in the Blue Mountains. And I got to, yeah, I think it was, you know, it was a way to just play for people immediately, you know. And then recently I've just been composing work. Yeah, I've worked with a few symphonies around Australia. Very, very lucky to write music for children 
and that was amazing. I got to work in regional Victoria and tour with the Melbourne Symphony and teach them language, all these kids, yeah. you know. Um, and so that was a good sort of prototype for hopefully other things that can happen with education, with language. And so, yeah, I've just been doing everything I can, really. Mm. Yeah. Are you finding that, um, you know, in the music scene now that uh, language is, is coming back and, and becoming strong, you know, all over the country? Yeah. It seems there is a very big emphasis on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, there is. I was just wondering as well, um, what... Well, you came up here for the Desert Festival. Um, tell us, tell us a bit more about that experience. How, how did you find it here oh in the centre? The, um, the Aboriginal Women's Choir is just amazing. They remember all them harmonies. They don't even. It's not written down. That's something that I would need to read, you know, off a sheet of music. But these guys, they remember it off by heart. And I mean, it, you know, I guess it's something that you learn. Like I can do that, but it's just amazing to hear that oral history how the aunties are able to, yeah, put that into music. I was so um, inspired by that, just as a classical musician and an Aboriginal classical musician. You know, I think this is, I think it was amazing to see that because it puts, it, it's like a genre of Aboriginal classical music, you know? Mm. And I think that that's what I touch on in my music. So the, being here is really put that into perspective and also just to see Alice Springs is just amazing I've never been here before so the, go to the Gorge and play to work with Q connect with Mob at, um, when we played at Monty's that was so much fun you guys have a good party here <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a great night yeah just uh, a message out there for all the young ones who are um, you know looking to pick up the fiddle or you know even just try something what, what do you have to say to them um stay true and just express yourself it's so important and just share it with the world and don't be scared you know yeah cool on that note uh, Eric Avery thanks very much for joining me here on Calm Radio thank you That was uh, Eric Avery, classical Aboriginal violinist, speaking with Karma's Damien Williams about his musical journey here on Strong Voices. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country very shortly. We're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back with that. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here with me, Kyle Dowling. I'm very happy to see them joined in the studio by Karma's Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Uh, good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it is, of course, time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. We'll start with you, Paul. I understand you've got a story this morning in regards to uh, regional architects. Uh, coming up in October, uh, the... Um Australian Institute of Architects 2019 New South, Wales, New South Wales Regional Conference will be looking to develop a deeper understanding of country. Uh, 
this is not possible without architects and architecture beginning an authentic engagement on reconciliation with the First Nations peoples. Always was, always will be. We'll ask a diverse range of speakers to lead the audience to a broader and deeper understanding of the cultural, historical, environmental and political perspectives of the country in which we live and seek to build on. One of the uh, principal speakers um, from Mbantua, Alice Springs, Sue Dugdale, um, Principal Sue Dugdale and Associates uh, will be attending. Uh, we might um, see if we can get Sue Dugdale to come in and have a yarn before she goes down uh, to the conference to see uh, where um, she's going uh, with her thoughts on uh, the connection to country and how that uh, impacts on architecture. Yeah, it's always interesting hearing about those different aspects of how people... Um I can't remember what, what year I did the story on it, but it, it was about that whole looking back to those methods that people use in terms of being able to survive within those areas. Obviously, uh, you know, not with the types of buildings that we have now and sort of thinking about it in that lens still, though, so that, you know, the buildings aren't as reliable on aircon or heaters and things like that, where they're more minimalistic mm-hmm. in those sort of senses where you can still have them, but you know, you don't need them all the time, essentially. I think having, um, you know, we have seen a number of uh, very prominent Australian architects um, who work uh, um, with an Aboriginal elder in New South Wales and have done for two, 20, 30 years now. Um, mm. uh, the connection to country and the understanding of the significance of country and how it impacts on environments, but taking all of that into account um, when designing both and locating uh, uh, buildings um, obviously has a significant impact on what's going to happen when the people start living in the house mm-hmm. so uh, yeah it's it's uh, in a sense uh, something that people would consider to be um, obvious mm. Well, it's interesting to see, see you know, the new uh, architects, well, not necessarily the new architects, but the architects then going and, and looking back at that knowledge. It's very interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, on to you, Damien. What do you have for us this morning? Um, this one from the ABC says, uh, has a story on an Indigenous language puzzle um, that has received missing pieces after a freak find buried in an old book. Uh, a long lost list of words from one Indigenous language compiled by the 19th century English explorer Edward Eyre um, has been rediscovered. Uh, Caroline Hughes, who researches the Ngunnawal language um, of the Canberra region, made the find during a workshop um, that was uh, words that were in a book held in Adelaide um, were uh, drawn to her attention by relatives she met while tracing her family history. Um, She mentioned um, that uh, they were able to make the connection and access that information there in Canberra at the National Library as well and the iconic Australian sites such as Lake Eyre and the Eyre Peninsula bear um, Edward's Eyre's name. Um, But in the 1830s, the explorer spent time in um, what is now Canberra region where he recorded uh, the language, the local language there. So, you know, finding um, languages that were forbidden as well to be spoken, you know, within um, 
places had a had a very negative impact on languages being suppressed and lost and um you know well like we're talking to i was talking to eric earlier about um, putting language in song and stuff like that and he was lucky enough to be able to hear his great-grandfather speaking and singing a song to be able to you know bring that language back to life and um having um, projects like the the um, language puzzle is is um, an amazing thing for a lot of languages to be revived. Mm. Well, it's interesting hearing those, uh, you know, little stories like that when they talk about you know this thing led to this and, and mm. this and it just happened to be this one thing happened and then it, <laughs> you know you're able to recover it and it's that one little bit that you're missing in that whole puzzle. I think it's interesting yeah. to hear. It is amazing. It's a good story. We'll have to try and track the young lady down and uh, mm. see what the Adelaide connection is. Mm. Well, on that note, Damien, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a quick break now, and then we'll be right back. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Yes, welcome back to Strong Voices. Well, as a report in our news, disturbing statistics released by the Royal Life Saving Society reveal Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are overrepresented in the national drowning statistics, accounting for 5% of total drowning deaths over a 10-year period. Royal Life Saving Northern Territory CEO Floss Roberts says sadly many of the territory deaths occur as a result of wrong decisions. There's lots of different contributing factors, but more often than not, it's just making the wrong decision. Crossing a river that's flooded, particularly in cars, but sometimes just on foot. Being in waterways that actually aren't safe to be in. And also people not having a real understanding of what their own capabilities are. So they might be able to swim okay where they can touch the bottom in a swimming pool and what have you. But getting into a fast flowing stream can soon get out of your comfort zone and next thing people start to panic. So there's lots of contributing factors. But I suppose for us in the Northern Territory, the leading location for our drowning deaths has consistently been in our rivers, creeks and streams. This year was unusual in that 50% of the drownings were in dry season and 50% in wet. But in previous years, we usually have more drownings in December, January, especially January. Sadly for many First Nations peoples, getting the message through to them in a language that they can understand may or may have not contributed to people's uh, safety concerns and issues. I mean, what's been done in that respect? I think the messaging across the whole of the community is really important, like you say, within education. I think it's more also around others going, hey, mate, the river's up too high, we actually can't go there. And, of course, if alcohol's involved or drugs that just affect your decision-making, then it could be just that moment that you get in there where you shouldn't be in the water. But overall, I think there's increased messaging around if it's flooded forget it i know a lot of the the um, road safety signs have uh, been on more of the roads now can we do more definitely and i think the first bit stays with us in in community each looking after each other and just saying you know it's not safe to get in there or it's not safe to cross or hey listen you're having a few drinks get out of the pool because uh, you might get into difficulty. So really that's sort of the best way to go in there. But in this year, all of, our, all of the six drownings were in rural and remote locations. Um, so that is always just 
devastating to a community to lose somebody from drowning and it has an impact on the whole community and so very very sad but also preventable. The connection between alcohol, drugs and death, uh, obviously it's a it's a lethal cocktail, drugs, alcohol and water and, and again education, getting the message through. Uh, you did touch on people who aren't under the influence of either of drugs or alcohol um, be there to make the right call. But obviously education, but education in language and, um, you know, the significance of that, making sure that young children in communities uh, from a very young age are given these uh, messages in a language that they can absorb as the wider non-Indigenous community is. Yeah, look, I agree. And I think that the simple message of don't drink and drown community leaders can help put it in a range of different languages so to make it more appropriate the same as um, Facebook post or whatever it might be to be able to uh, resonate with people but one thing that I'm really proud of is that we're into the 11th year now of our remote swim survive and strive program and that is a community program that goes out to 30 remote communities in 21 remote locations across the Northern Territory. So over 3,000 children participate in that program. So they learn um, swimming, they learn survival skills, they learn how to save people, they learn how to do CPR, and also adults within the communities do like first aid and CPR training. And those numbers have continued to increase and the competencies of the children have continued to really, really improve. And so while it's not perfect and the do-all, end-all, but, you know, it's a constant program that has working well within the communities and it's all about swimming, water safety, life-saving skills and knowing how to make the right decision. So hopefully as we move into the next generation, because that's only been happening for the last 10 years, so hopefully as we move in there, then, you know, they'll also be able to help in that life-saving space. There's been a, a great uh, emphasis on youth, but um, sadly, more than a, a third of those who drown in the age bracket 55 to 64, the education process obviously has to uh, go across all age groups. I know, I know. And, you know, it's just staggering um, because, you know, you're right, over a third is, you know, in that over 55 um, age group. And, they're, you know, I suppose, um, you know, in the Territory, we, you know, people are starting to retire here now. Um, they're staying on country longer and they're, um, they are older uh, and they're wanting to cool down or, you know, cross the river and what have you and you know the sad thing is in, in, in some cases you know people are under medication and other um, prescriptions and you know they mightn't be safe enough to be able to be in the water at that time and that's something that they have to check with their doctor obviously so in that age group we've got to be able to keep watch on them and just say hey listen you know you can't do that now come over here and we don't want you swimming in there or whatever it might be and um, it's not a bad thing to be able to help them out because they're obviously you know making the wrong decision. There have been a number of television commercials coming out of Queensland about rising rivers and, and that sort of thing again they're in English I think people sort of get the idea but um, do you think uh, more could be done in educating people around um, that type of activity, but again, in a language that they might be able to understand. 
I think so. Having resources like that that can be easily translated into a range of languages um, and even the, the photos or whatever that go with it be, you know, culturally appropriate as well because then it will mean something to people. Um, and you're right, um, Queensland have, if it's flooded, forget it, as does New Zealand, um, WA have, um, don't, you know, and Victoria, don't let your mates drink and drown. Um, so there's a, there's a range of campaigns, but I suppose it's more important to have that consistent messaging because, like you say, it could be a dry water hole one minute and then a fast-flowing river the next, like the Todd River, you know, it's desert half the year and then next thing it's just, you know, the fastest-flowing river around and a, and a long river. So, you know... Appropriate messaging would be great, but also just the simple things like don't go swimming alone because if you get into trouble, there's no one there to save you. And the other thing is, you know, if you're going to be in the water, have a flotation aid with you. Like you can have a noodle or, you know, an airbed or something so that if you get into trouble or you get puffed or you get chest pains or whatever it might be, then you can stay afloat, you can call out for help and you can keep your head above water. So, you know, looking at the, the, the environment first and thinking, is it safe to go in there? Does it look safe? And while to a lot of young people and, and older people, a fast-flowing water might look like fun, it can just turn into a nightmare and be deadly just like that. So look for other safer places to go and really look after each other around the waterways is probably the best messaging. Really, it's important for families. While we were so, so lucky that we didn't have any children, and I say lucky because drowning is the leading cause of accidental death of children under five in the world. So we were really lucky in this period that we didn't have a drowning of a child under five years of age. But in saying that, for the parents, just to remember that keep watch of your children around water means arm's reach because they can just get into trouble just like that and you can't silent. It's silent and it's quick. So supervise your children around the water. Keep within arm's reach so you can effect a quick rescue if you need be. That's a really strong message that I'd like to put out for families. That was uh, Royal Lifesaving Northern Territory CEO Floss Roberts speaking with Carmen Paul Wiles. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for today. Thank you for tuning in. Strong Voices.